Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome back to the UBS Market Moves podcast channel. Thank you for joining us for another episode of House Call, talking equity markets with UBS Asset Management, a monthly podcast here on UBS Market Moves. Joining us once again for the conversation, glad to welcome back Jeremy Zirin, head of the private client U.S. equity team, as well as Dominique Shager, UBS Asset Management's Senior Equity Investment Specialist. So with that, Jeremy, Dom, looking forward to hearing your insights into the equity markets and what you've been picking up on. Dom, I'll pass it over to you to lead today's conversation with Jeremy. Welcome back. Great. Thank you, Dan. We appreciate you having us on the show as always. Jeremy, we're almost halfway through the year and the markets have performed much better than expected. As of the close of June 22nd, the S&P 500 is up over 14% year-to-date. However, when you look beneath the surface, the strong year-to-date gains in the S&P have been very concentrated in just a handful of stocks. Can you maybe walk us through some of the drivers behind this year's performance? Sure. Yeah, it's definitely been a you know fascinating year and somewhat surprising uh, strength that we've seen in the equity market in the first half of the year. I think most investors, I would say, including us, didn't expect the market to be up in the mid-teens percentages in the you know, the first six months of the year, given the prospects of higher interest rates and ultimate impact on the economy, a slowdown in the corporate profit cycle and you know, ongoing geopolitical strife ranging from the Ukraine war and the trade tensions with China. But I would count you know, five things that did break right that were more supportive, you know, that helped drive the stock market gains in the first half of the year. I think first and foremost, you know, the U.S. economy has been more resilient than, than feared. Right, heading into the year, investor pessimism and recession risks were high. You know, and what we've seen so far this year is that the U.S. consumer has continued to spend, uh, largely driven by continued labor market gains. So, despite the fact that we've seen leading economic indicators suggesting more material uh, economic weakness, economic weakness on the come, you know, non-farm payrolls expanded by a monthly average of nearly 250,000 during the first five months of the year. GDP grew 1.3% in the first quarter, and it's on track to grow between 1.5% and 2% in the second quarter. I would say the second positive development is what we've seen on inflation, that inflation has been decelerating. So we certainly haven't achieved the Fed's goal of, of 2% inflation. Inflation is still you know, well above that, uh, but you know, the inflation uh, trajectory has been moving in the right direction. You know, I would say this is a fairly low bar since the CPI peaked at 9% last summer and ended last year at about 6.5%. But, you know, just last month, the CPI fell to 4% or 4.4% on the, the Fed's preferred measure, the, the PCE measurement of inflation. And so the trajectory of inflation has been encouraging for investors. Third, I would say on the earnings front, right? The S&P earnings did decline on a year-on-year basis in the first quarter, and that was the second consecutive quarter of negative year-on-year prints. But the forward-looking guidance last quarter, I'd say, wasn't as bad as feared. And maybe to put some numbers around that, you know, consensus estimates for this year, if you look back a year ago, stood at about $250, and they fell to $220 by March of this year. And they've largely stabilized around that, you know, $220 figure, and ex- consensus is expecting closer to $245 for next year, so some reacceleration. 
And, you know, I've always cited that, you know, earnings are the lifeblood of the stock market. So stabilization and forward-looking estimates, I think, was, was critical in, in uh, improving market sentiment. You know, the fourth uh, category would be that, you know, that was more positive this year than expectations was that, you know, economies outside the U.S. improved. So, you know, Europe didn't have the feared Armageddon scenario of spiking gas prices due to the, uh, sort of the war in Ukraine, you know, in part because it got lucky that we had a warm winter. Um, and also, you know, the end to zero COVID policy in China unleashed stronger economic growth in Asia, but also had positive ripple effects on the global economy. And then finally, you know, the last item I'd mentioned that was the, has been driving markets this year, and it's one that you mentioned, Don, that's been the gains have been fairly narrow. Right. In fact, if you just look at the first five months of the year, seven mega cap stocks, mostly in the tech sector, were responsible for more than 100 percent of the year to date gains in the S&P 500, uh, meaning that if you uh, remove those seven stocks, uh, the market was largely flat to slightly down. Uh, so, you know, the combination of the poor performance from mega caps and mega cap growth stocks specifically last year and the growing investor excitement over artificial intelligence, you know, sparked huge gains in some of the, you know, the biggest laggards from last year and some of the largest stocks in the market that can really drive the index. Thank you, Jeremy. I like how you summarized it into five points. So, with continuing with the topic, um, at the June policy meeting, the Federal Reserve left interest, change, interest rates unchanged, breaking a series of 10 rate hikes that stretch back to March 2022. At the press conference, the Fed Chair Powell signaled that further rate hikes were likely, given the strength of the labor market, which you touched on, and the still high inflation. From your perspective, what do you think we can expect from the Fed in the coming months? So the trend in the Fed's hiking cycle so far this year has, has been to continue to raise rates, but to slow down the pace of rate hikes as they got further and further into you know what I'll call restrictive territory or above the neutral you know Fed funds rate, which is somewhere in the two and a half to three percent range. And so while last year the Fed was raising rates you know fifty or seventy five basis points at a time, so far this year we've seen three twenty five basis point rate hikes in February, March, and May. And I think they decided to skip hiking rates in the June meeting for a couple of reasons. You know, one, they're concerned just about the cumulative effect of over 500 basis points of hikes and what that will ultimately do to the economy. And FOMC members often cite that policy works with long and variable lags, which vary cycle to cycle. So to some degree, you know, they feel like they've already done a lot. And two, I would say that, the, you know, with the pace of inflation slowing, as I mentioned, you know, they also feel like they have the luxury to slow down the rate hike, the pace of rate hikes, since you know, some of the members feel that even though inflation is above that 2% target, as I mentioned, it's on the right trajectory and that, you know, broadly, while they haven't won the war on inflation, that they're showing progress on the battlefield. And then the last point is one that, you know, several members of the FOMC have mentioned is that, you know, they wanted to exhibit a bit of caution given, you know, the banking stress that we saw really flare up in March and April, you know, after we saw Silicon Valley signature and first public uh, go under, you know, I think many Fed officials just wanted to, you know, buy a little time here and see if there would be any type of, you know, pullback in financial lending conditions as banks become more cautious with their lending practices, you know, given the, the turmoil that we saw in the banking sector and the Fed certainly didn't want, you know, to potentially exaggerate, you know, the banking stress and the pressure on system-wide credit availability 
by raising rates, you know, further into a banking crisis. And so, you know, what does the Fed do next? You know, I, I do believe that uh, that when the if Fed says that they're data dependent, they're data dependent. And the question really is, what's the data that they're looking at? And I think that the data they're looking most closely at will be, you know, service inflation x housing, which they've noted is on a slowing trajectory, but it's been a little sticky and sticky and definitely higher than they'd like it to be. Um, and, you know, I think that they're also looking, you know, starting to think a little bit more on the growth side of the ledger, right? So the focus has been entirely on inflation and while growth's been resilient, you know, I think they want to continue to to see uh, and monitor that resiliency. And so for that, they're really looking at, you know, bank lending data and they're looking at, you know, uh, you know signals from the labor market, which, you know, have been strong so far, but we are getting some of, you know, more leading components of the labor market, like initial jobless claims that are now, you know, starting to rise and are at, you know, 12 months high. So I think it's, I think it's very likely that they will still look at the balance of, you know, risks to inflation as much greater than the risks of a growth slowdown. And because of that, a rate hike in July is very, very likely. And, it's, you know, I think that their base case, or at least what was indicated in their summary of economic projections uh, from the broader FOMC committee of, of two more rate hikes this year it is quite likely. It will be dependent on the data, of course, but I think the base case of a minimum of two hikes, you know, in the back half of the year uh, is, is a reasonable expectation. So, Jeremy, earlier you mentioned that tech was a key driver to year-to-day performance, and since the public launch of ChatGPT, artificial intelligence is on top of investors' mind. With some of the mega-cap AI names being up, you know, 50 to 200% year-to-date, do you believe the AI rally is sustainable? Yeah, it's been remarkable. And I'd say over the past two months, AI now comes up in almost every investor and company management meeting that I'm involved in. Uh, I do think we're in the, the very early days of something transformative. But, you know, just like the, the browser, you know, unlocked the potential of the Internet, you know, two and a half decades ago, and apps unlocked the potential of walking around with a computer in your pocket, uh, AI and specifically generative AI is likely to change the way we interact with computers to a more you know, natural interface to extract information from large language models and machine learning you know, over time. Uh, but from an investor perspective, I think it's important to recognize that these techno- technological changes often take more time to develop than initially thought or, frankly, what's initially priced in to, to many equities. And I mean, to just think back to, uh, you know, the 30 years ago, Netscape Navigator was released in 1994, but it took years for Internet access to and usage to become, you know, more mainstream. So I would say in terms of, you know, the the investment landscape, um, the ultimate uses of AI and generative AI specifically, I think there's a lot of unanswered questions about not just use cases, but the higher costs involved in uh, utilizing generative AI. And, and, and because of those questions, it gives me a, a bit of pause when thinking about, you know, the market reactions that we've seen to, uh, to some of these uh, AI-levered stocks. And just to level set, you know, what companies are actually saying and doing right now, you know, I, I think a couple of, of anecdotes or data points are interesting. There's a recent survey of 105 chief information officers at global 1,000 companies 
And in that survey, just 13% of them said that spending on AI is a meaningful part of their IT budget, with the vast majority saying that they're still exploring if AI can be applied to their business in a meaningful way. And then just yesterday, you know, Accenture, the world's you know, biggest uh, technology consulting firm, said that their research shows that only 5 to 10% of companies are what they call mature enough with their in-house data to actually be able to harness the power of generative AI. So it's just another indication that we're still in the very early days of the actual build-out application implementation at any form of scale that would be, you know, uh, lead to any type of, you know, longer-term productivity gains or transformational type of, of technological change. And so, you know, again, what does this, trying to boil it down, what does this mean for investors? I think there will clearly be some companies that will benefit from AI, and the early winners are likely to be so-called picks and shovels of the infrastructure build-out of spending on large language models and data security. But I do worry that the actual financial impact uh, may disappoint, you know, very lofty expectations, um, given that, one, we, you know, the spending may, may be less than people expect in the near term, and two, the ultimate use cases may not be as broad uh, as, you know, maybe some of the uh, lofty expectations that are embedded into an increasingly broader set of technology and growth company valuations. Thank you, Jeremy. Um, I think it's nice that you were able to provide some perspective on the topic. So I'm going to change topics for a little bit. Every year, the Russell indices are reconstituted to reflect changes in the market cap of the underlying companies they hold. Those changes took effect earlier today. Can you maybe walk us through some of the most significant changes? Yeah, the one trend that I think is the most significant for investors and specifically to growth stock investors has been the increasing concentration that's been going on in most large cap indexes over the last few years in the U.S. And so most people that follow markets, you know, are, are fairly, uh, you know, uh, understanding and, and recognize that the largest five, six, seven companies in the S&P have grown significantly, right? So, in fact, the largest five companies in the S&P now comprise 25% of the entire market cap of the index. And if you look at the sectors that those stocks are in, you know, technology, communication services, and, and uh, consumer discretionary, uh, they comprise just under 50% of the S&P 500. But I think what's less understood or recognized is what happens with the Russell indices. And why we bring them up is because many investors follow them in terms of their style indices, uh, growth and value. And you know when you look at their annual rebalance, which uh, effectively takes place today, you know, the concentration of those same three sectors, technology, communication services, and consumer discretionary, in the, their large cap growth index, or the Russell 1000 large cap growth index, is increasing from 66% to over 70%. And so, uh, for context, if you, if you just go back you know, about five years to the end of 2018, those three sectors comprised about 50% of the large cap growth index. So now it's 20 percentage points higher. That's just a, a really huge seismic shift. And so, you know, the implication for investors is that, you know, if you're investing in a large cap growth index that's, that is tracking 
the Russell 1000 growth index, it's going to just be much more driven and potentially vulnerable to any stumbles in those three sectors. And remember, those three sectors are ultimately driven by just a handful of stocks that dominate them. Thank you, Jeremy. We really appreciate your insights. Dan, that's a wrap from us. Thank you again for having us on the show. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients, UBS Financial Services, Inc. offers investment advisory services in its capacity as an SEC-registered investment advisor and brokerage services in its capacity as an SEC-registered broker-dealer. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways, and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. It is important that you understand the ways in which we conduct business and that you carefully read the agreement and disclosures that we provide to you about the products or services we offer. For more information, please review Client Relationship Summary provided at UBS.com forward slash Relationship Summary or ask your UBS Financial Advisor for a copy. 